and welcome back to Podcastles with me, Georgia, and my sister, Nikita. We are looking at all the castles of English history. And at the moment, season two, episode two, we are currently on Northumberland castles. Nick, what are we looking at today? This week, we're going to look at Bamborough Castle. Yes, and I am really excited about this one. What a gorgeous castle. It's, do you know what? It's got a super long history. It's about 1,400 years old. I've read one source where the, apparently the locals believed that the castle was built before Jesus was born. So we better dive straight in then if we've got that much to cover. To start with, it's it's not actually even Bamborough Castle to begin with. It's actually originally a, a Celtic Britonic fort. Mm. Like there's a there's a Celtic site there, and it was the capital for the kings of Northumbria. Okay. So this is you know pre pre England really, you know being a thing. So it was <laughs> called, and I'm going to botch this. It was called Dinguadri. Yeah, Dinguadri. It was on the it's on the coast. It's 150 feet above the sea level. It's got its own natural harbour, which is why I think it was so useful for the kings of Northumbria. The, the history goes back that we've got to 547 AD. So it was captured by the Anglo-Saxons, led by Ida of Benicia, also called Ida the Flamebearer. What a sick name. Which is a cool name, but also slightly scary. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was he who started to build the original main main section of the castle. Out of out of wood, but you know these things and convert to stone. In 590, the Britons took it back from Ida's son. But then that didn't really last very long, so it went back to the Anglo-Saxons. So then we go forward 10 years, roughly, to 600. The Ethelfrith was the ruler, and he, when he died, he actually passes the castle to his wife, called Beba. Excellent name. Are you sure that's not just, like, the way they spelled baby or something? I think it's, it's Beba. Maybe it's Bieber. Bieber. Maybe. But it's it's Beber, and that's where the name uh, Bebenber comes from, which then becomes Bamborough, I, th- I think. Interesting. That's the line I drew from what I read. Okay. So in 634, Oswald, who's Ida's great-grandson, he becomes the, uh, the king of Northumbria, but he actually becomes the saint king of Northumbria. So that's pretty impressive as a newly becoming Christian country or Christian regions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's done quite well with that name. But I still prefer Flamebearer, I have to say. Yeah, Flamebearer kind of sounds slightly cooler, better for your cred. So he brings a man called Aidan to Bamborough. He sort of plucks him. Oswald and, and his brother, I think, were taught in monasteries. So they're, they're quite Christian people. And Aidan actually becomes Saint Aidan. And Oswald gives Aidan a bunch of land on which they build... A religious house and it becomes Lindisfarne Priory. Okay. So it's still there today. So then we, we move we move on a bit to, to 700 and this is when we start to see around this time more attacks from Vikings. Okay. So the the Danish are coming over and, and this is, you know, starting the period of, of all those invasions and uh, apparently the English used to nail flayed Danes, like their skins to church doors as retaliation. Why? Which ugh, is horrible. So it's a bit bit Game of Thrones. Y- yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you're going to be pillaged regularly, you're going to try and scare them off. So then, actually, this culminates in in 993, the castle is, is destroyed by the Vikings. 
then we kind of have to jump forward about 100 years and we go to 1095, which is okay. obviously post the Norman conquest of England and William II, yeah. William Rufus, he tries to besiege the castle and doesn't work, but it's in this period that it's owned by a man called Robert Mowbray, who's the Earl of Northumbria. So we've kind of transitioned from that kings to the amalgamation of England and then we've got the earls of Northumbria instead of the kings. So Robert actually ends up being captured in the battles for Bamburgh Castle, but his wife holds the castle. She holds out. She holds out really well. She only gives up the castle when they threaten to blind Robert. So then it go, it falls to the to the royal family and after that, it becomes a royal castle and really important in the dispute with Scotland. Right. In the Anglo-Scottish Wars. And that's kind of just after that is when they build the keep there. Slightly later on, when I, one of the articles I actually read by Turner about the minority of Henry III was talking about how Bamber was actually one of the most important, to quote, Bamber Castle was one of the most important fortresses in the north of England. It, it, that just gives context to why it, you know, it becomes a really important stronghold in the fights against the Scottish. Not only that, but several kings actually stay there. So you've got, I think, John's there. Boo. Uh, Henry III, Edward I, II and Third. There's definitely a place for kings to go then. Yeah, and I also imagine that that is in part because they're involved with the fights with Scotland. Yeah, of course. Uh, Richard I gives it to a man called Sir John Foster, not just to have, but he becomes the governor of the castle. So that's in the 12th century. And then moving on from there, during, during Henry III's minority, it's finding a new warden. Who they choose for that position of warden is really key because of the importance of that position. So yeah, I thought that was, that was quite interesting. But then we're going to go on 100 years again, Georgia. Okay. Because then we're getting to Robert the Bruce. Excellent. And the Anglo-Scottish Big Wars. name, big name. Big name. And I think he'll probably crop up a little bit more in our next episode. But for, for now, it's, it's an interesting look because the article I was reading is by um, Scammell and it's called Robert I in the North of England. And it was a really interesting article because it was talking about how the power dynamics between Robert the Bruce being a very powerful leader. And this is at the same time as we've got Edward II, who is not of the same calibre of strength. As Edward I, you mean? Well, as Robert. So Okay. So Robert the Bruce, he's done Scotland. He's completed it. Been there, got the badge. So he's like, oh, I'm going to go for Northern England now. Okay. Because I can. So he starts to sort of do do more invasions. There's already a lot of war anyway, but he kind of spreads it out. He does attack specific locations, but he's also spreading it out because he's getting the money from the lands. And actually, because Edward II's not very good, he's not commanding the same kind of power as Robert or even as previous kings in England. So... It's quite normal in the north to have truces with the Scottish. Right. And pay to get them to go away. In my head, this is a similar way to kind of Danegeld, but maybe not. It, it's, it's definitely a ransom to kind of stop. You're, pay, you're paying a, a fee to not be attacked, basically. Yeah. Well, I've heard of that before where people go, well, we can see you're about to attack us. And if you don't, we'll give you this money. As a quote from the article, it was collecting a steady income of cash. So that's, you know, quite good for them. It doesn't really work to kill a lot of people because it's diminishing returns. So, uh, but the whole whole system is like on it's like raids and it would be sort of days or weeks instead of months because it's just like, it's like a grab and go 
situation. Yeah, it's really not very great for the northern castles, as, as you can imagine. So in the context of Bamborough, for these Anglo-Scottish wars and the relationship between Robert the Bruce and Edward II and how they interact with the north, you'd have castles taking people from the surrounding area as kind of ref- for a refuge. And those seeking safety at, at Bamborough, they had to pay the Castellan to enter and then they'd have like their stuff taken away and it, it just ended up being very expensive to be seeking refuge at the castle. Right. But then there's also not really a lot of choice because it's it's either kind of have everything taken from you inside or die. So it's not great. But in April of 1322, the length of time that the raids are going on for, you couldn't collect any rent from the Bamborough lands because it was so bad. Really? Okay. Even in 1328, apparently they could only get 61% of their general revenue. It was also interesting to read the article because in... 1315, the people of Bamborough, they mentioned the truces and sending money to the Scottish when they're petitioning the king. And so it's not like they're paying the Scottish to go away on the down low. The king knows that they're doing it. Right. And the king's kind of fine with it. They, like, they, they can still ask for help from Edward while doing it. Right. Which says quite a lot about that relationship. And it, they were talk, it's sort of the article's talking about how these tributes are becoming kind of policy because of the power of Robert, but also the, the lack of power from, from Edward. The article went on to say that a fifth of Edward's kingdom is tributary to Robert the Bruce. Really? And the only time that there's some kind of anger suggested is actually in a letter about one of the Bamber truces later on. Right. And even then, no one's punished for it. It's just accepted as kind of a way of life. Yeah. So I thought that was, it's a really interesting look at the history of Bamber Castle and, and what was going on there as such an important monument in the north as a way of keeping safety but also it, it's clearly very involved in in all of these fights and it's, it's just a subject to all these issues mm. then we're going to move on again to 1346 which is a different scottish king okay who is it now this is david right another big name he's actually held prisoner there after the battle of neville's cross oh okay and i've heard of the battle of neville's cross before as well yeah so the, the battle of neville's cross was in the second war of scottish independence okay it's not far from Durham and it is King David II and the English and it was because of an invasion of France by England and right. because you've got the old alliance, you then have the Scottish invading England. But then, I mean, there's not much more to say about about it until we then get on to John of Gaunt. So we're looking, again, like kind of 40 years in the future, so we're looking at 1381. John of Gaunt is a very important name. We've definitely discussed him before. Mm -hmm. So John of Gaunt is during sort of Richard II kind of time, and John of Gaunt was the father of Henry Bolingbroke, who later becomes Henry IV. Yeah. Later down the line kicks off the whole Wars of the Roses. In 1381, this is pre- the deposition of Richard II. That happens in 1399. But in 1381, there are letters to Gaunt as the Duke of Lancaster okay. telling him to stay in Bamber Castle because he they didn't know whether he'd fallen out of favour with the king. I also found a good article that was talking about the relationship between Gaunt as the Duke of Lancaster, but also Northumberland, who would be a Percy from last episode. Yeah. And sort of how that relationship was was going. And the story goes that the Duke in June of, of 1381 was retreating because he was turned away from Annick Castle. And 
wasn't allowed in because they didn't know what the relationship was like. But then Bamborough was blocked by Northumberland's servants. And that meant that all of his supplies, which were in Bamborough, were cut off from him. And so it was putting him in a, in a bit of a, a tricky situation. So Bamborough and Annick, I think, were the right ones to pick for our key episodes this week, Georgia, this month. So then we're going to move on to the Wars of the Roses. So during the Wars of the Roses, Henry VI was actually housed at Bamborough Castle at one point. And it's actually one of the few castles that get attacked. So it's clearly quite key that they have to actually physically attack it. And the fact that it is chosen as one of the places that Henry VI goes to clearly suggests that it's very good at being defended. And then I don't have a super amount more about it for a while. Okay, so we're jumping forwards again. Yeah, so, I mean, that's quite a brief look at the Wars of the Roses, but then you have to kind of jump forward to about 1610, which is when James VI and I of England and Scotland yep. actually gives the castle to a man called Claudius Foster. And presumably because his family have been the keepers of the castle since Richard I, so this is kind of like a reward. So he's sort of like, well, he might as well have it. But it's it's too expensive to keep the castle, and so it gets it gets kind of left. And by 1701, it's still in their family, and it goes to the last person in the line, which is a woman, and she marries Dorothy, her name is. She marries the Bishop of Durham. Okay. Then once she dies in 1715, he sets up, a charity to restore the castle and he dies in 1721 but still leaves money for it he's actually ennobled in his own right and so i think there's quite a lot of money that they've accrued and he's the last of his line he dies in 1721 there's more money for the castle so the castle becomes several different things over time in the 1700s so there's a pharmacy hospital surgery free school for poor children and things like that in 1786 one of the trustees called Dr. Sharp, who was kind of spearheading it, turns the castle into the Coast Guard station. Okay. And he, the first ever lifeboat was launched from Bamborough. Amazing. So it's been quite a few different things over its history. It's worn many hats. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, and we don't stop here. Uh, okay. This is one of the castles that actually goes through history. There's actually stuff to talk about later on as well, which is nice. So... There's, there's not much to say then until 1894, but it's still, you know, the fact that we can go up to 1894 is awesome. So it was bought by a man called William Armstrong for £60,000. Wow. Which I think is, is about £7 million. I looked it up. Okay. It's a bit more than that, but about £7 million at the time. It's still, I'm, I won't lie, that's a bit of a steal for a castle. Yeah. Especially if you see it, it's not like a little tower. It's a, it's a full-blown castle. Yeah, and he, he was sold the castle because despite all the trustee work and all the money that was being pumped into it to restore it, it still had a lot of financial troubles. And the Armstrongs still own the castle today. Oh, wow. All right. So you can go around it. It's got, it's got lots of interesting um, things to go and see. Like a lot of castles that are now are still family homes, that they are open to the public. I can't wait to visit it because I feel like we've only really scratched the surface. There's so many different hats that this uh, castle wears. As you say, it has so many different roles over such a large amount of history that, I mean, I feel like we could have done a whole episode on just, you know, a single use of the castle. But we have to move on. We are going to look into detail in one section... Deep Dive. So who or what are we talking about today in our Deep Dive, Nick? What have you pulled out from the archives? So I thought we'd look at the 
19th century and shake things up a little bit. All right, we don't do that very often. So it's kind of Victorian, but also mainly straddling just the Industrial Revolution in general, which I think is super interesting. And complete hands up, this isn't like an area that I ever looked at. Even at school, I actively avoided anything in the 1900, 19th century because <laughs> I just thought Victorians were a bit boring. But this guy is really interesting. Okay. So we're talking about William Armstrong. So he actually bought Bamborough Castle in 1894, as I, as I mentioned. So this is actually in the last six years of his life because he dies in 1900. Like I say, I found this really interesting because it is actually a great insight into the age of industrial revolution and sort of that change and how everything happened. The National Trust has called him one of Britain's least celebrated geniuses. Interesting, okay. I, I'd say let's give him some celebrations, but there are some armament stories, so maybe not. But he's, he's an interesting guy and he actually made a lot of his money with hydraulics. He was an environmentalist, Georgia, which I think is quite an interesting thing to be in the age of coal. But he was really, really fascinated by solar power and water power. One of his manors, so he bought a manor called Cragside before he bought Bamborough Castle. And Cragside was actually the first house in the world to be lit with hydroelectricity. Awesome. Yeah, so he's really into this stuff and he's, he's great. And that's how he makes his fortune. Going back to the start of his life, he was born in 1810 in the Newcastle-upon-Tyne area, which is very north of England. In brief, he's knighted in 1859 and then becomes a baron in 1887. So that's very brief overview. There's so much to go into detail. His father was a corn merchant. He went to grammar school and was supposed to become a lawyer. He spent 14 years practicing law and he went to work at a, at a firm that actually, he, it was a friend of his father's and during that time, he became a partner of the firm. Okay. But he never really, he, he was always, his heart was really in engineering and particularly in the power you could harness from water. And so was designing sort of water-powered rotary engines in 1840 to 42. During the time he's practicing law, he was actually working on a hydroelectric machine. To start with, this didn't, you know, gain a lot of traction, but it ended up, he, he built a piston engine for hydraulic cranes and that's when he started really taking off. He left his job in law and started to build a factory in 1847 so that he could build these hydraulic cranes and the company just kept expanding. In 1846, he became a fellow of the Royal Society in 1846. The Royal Society's been going since about, I think, 1660 and so it's a really big scientific society and it's still going today it's a really prestigious society so companies expanding and then in 1854 you get the crimean war this is when mm. he turns not just he doesn't just do hydraulics he also expands into armaments which i mean isn't great is it so he builds a an easier to move gun the government really like it and he actually hands over the design rather than selling it to them and so that's why he becomes a knight they they knight him for okay. his service it, but in 62 for some reason there's a lot of problem with the guns i don't understand why and they stop using it and then he sells the gun to other countries so in 1864 he then makes naval guns he's clearly quite big into armaments at this point so then moving on we then look at sort of later in his life he was high sheriff of northumberland in 1873 which is a pretty big honor then later in life he's also the president of several engineering institutions and he actually builds newcastle swing bridge because he needed the bridge to be able to open because his boats can get through pretty interesting he also runs for election in newcastle so he's still a very big figure in that area of england he's a prolific figure in the area of england he's a unionist liberal doesn't win they eventually merge with the conservatives and in 87 he's made a baron so he's clearly building up all this money and then in 1894, he that's when he buys Bambra. In that year, he actually installs the hydraulics on Tower Bridge in London. Oh, cool. 
they're his hydraulics, which is interesting because I love Tower Bridge. It's my favourite bridge. <laughs> the fact I have a favourite bridge is quite sad, but I love Tower Bridge. He dies at Cragside, which obviously isn't Bamborough, but he's his other house. This one that was the first in the world to have hydroelectricity. And apparently he's worth 1.4 million at that point. Although the article doesn't say whether he was worth 1.4 million in today's money or theirs, then's money. Them's money. Then's money. As he bought Bambra for £60,000, I would imagine that that is 1.4 in then's money. Yeah. So his wife was really interesting as well. I feel like it's worth mentioning her because it took quite a while to dig any information up on her. It's actually really difficult to know when she was even born because the National Trust says it was 1817, but then one of the sources that I was reading, a book by a man called Mackenzie, he has her as born like seven years before or six years before him. So that would put her way before that. So it was, it was a bit confusing, but she's quite interesting. She's really into natural sciences and things like horticulture and geology. Mm. So they're quite a good pair. Interestingly, in terms of how influential he was in society, apparently Cragside was visited by people like Prince Albert, who then obviously later became Edward VII and his wife. He also founded the college that would later merge with another to become Newcastle University. So he's he's this important person. One of the websites which is dedicated to his information, I thought was an interesting way of looking at him because it talks about how people who dismiss him as someone who was a rich arms manufacturer who treated his workers with contempt failed to acknowledge the vast benefits that he brought his, to his native Newcastle. And I just kind of think you cannot, dis- you don't need to dismiss him, but we should probably acknowledge that apparently his, like that suggests that his workers weren't treated very well. Um, at one point, one of his factories actually had more than 25,000 employees. So he's a really big figure. And the fact that Bamber is a part of that, I think really, it's a great way to go out that castle. <laughs> It's such a versatile history. The fact that that's the last time before it just becomes, I think, much more of a family home. Clearly, this guy has contributed greatly to the Industrial Revolution and the development of a lot of things in in England. And this is one of the castles he makes his home and is still the family home of his descendants. So he's an interesting guy. I thought he was, it was an interesting history. Well, that's why we started doing these sort of deep dive parts and we really wanted to bring this into season two because, you know, there are there's so many people that we learn about through studying these castles and it gives us a chance to look at people that maybe we wouldn't have looked at sometimes like last week we look at really big families that of course you would hear about elsewhere like Percy's sometimes we learn about these sorts of people that are still clearly quite important in the sort of old-fashioned sense of history of like key male high-class men well and in terms of in terms of what we were talking about in the last season with the influence of a castle yeah. And how, whether it's the castle itself or the people. Like, this is a man... Who, like, Newcastle University is, is a really great university. Yeah. And he, he's involved in that. And so there are these things that are still today, Tower Bridges, hydraulics and things like that. Like, this is a man with a lasting mark. He really raises an interesting historical discussion here because sometimes it is about drawing attention to people and stories that have been overlooked in the past. And sometimes... It's about re-evaluating better-known stories. I feel like this is a bit of both, because normally when I think about stories that have been overlooked in the past, it's normally of minorities or sort of ostracised stories, stories of people that weren't considered as important at the time. So there was a um, very prevalent narrative for a long time of the white, middle and upper-class men who were heroes politically or economically or militarily 
and um, everything else was kind of ignored. Now, so this wouldn't normally be the story that I would consider has been overlooked, but whether or not it has been, what is often overlooked in these stories is the negative aspects because often in order to create heroes in these in these stories they they ignore the negative parts and this is something that really raises an interesting point about we we absolutely can acknowledge the positive aspects that he's had and it's really important that if he has been overlooked that we should celebrate those positive aspects but at the same time that doesn't mean we need to ignore everything else to the contrary people can have both positive and negative impacts at the same time we can adjust the narrative so that they reflect both of those things. So, yeah, re- really interesting person to have a deep dive on, both as a story and as a debate about historical narratives. Thank you, Nick, for picking that today. Ghosts and Skeletons So, there is one thing we still haven't looked at today, and that, of course, is ghosts and skeletons. Have you got some tea for me to rate today? I do, but it might be a bit of a lukewarm cup, I'm afraid. Okay. 1,400 years of uh, history and it doesn't have much scandal. Yeah, or at least not much that I could find. I think I'm going to have to go to the castle, which obviously I'd love to have done. We were supposed to have gone recently, but obviously we can't because of lockdown. But I think there are some ghost tours that you could go on there. I don't know if they still have them, but they definitely ran them at one point. You can check the website for more information on that. But there are a couple of things that I can mention now. Firstly, and... I don't know how factually accurate this is. This is a running theme, Georgia. There was a pink lady ghost. And supposedly this is a Northumberland princess. So I presume this is going back to the age where it was the kingdom of Northumberland. And she fell in love with someone who her father didn't approve of. So he sent the suitor away. She got depressed. To try and cheer her up, the father told her that her lover had married someone else. Great, that seems like a logical thing to do. Yeah, it's not great parenting. At which point she threw herself down the stairs. Ah. So she died. And apparently she haunts the castle. Okay. Or at least the area. This is really a theme in Northumberland ghosts and skeletons, isn't it? Normally our ghosts and skeletons section is all sort of historical scandal Mm. and this time it's just sort of weird ghost stories. (laughs) Yeah, so what would you rate that? I mean... Not got a lot of... It's not a massive story, is it? I'm going to give it a two. Mm, yeah. I mean, moving on to the next one, which isn't a ghost or a skeleton, but it is a legend. Okay. Supposedly, Bambra is the site of Lancelot's castle. Really? Okay. Yes. Yeah, the Joyous Guard It is definitely listed in Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. According to the legend, Lancelot captures the castle, removes the spell that was placed on it, and then... You know, one of the things we know most about Lancelot, or one of the things he's most notorious for, is his affair with Guinevere, King Arthur's wife. So he actually, Lancelot brings Guinevere to the castle after their affair is discovered and Arthur condemns her to death. Oh, okay. So yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a ghost, it's not a skeleton, but it is a good legend and everybody loves a good Arthurian romance. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely am going to rate that higher. Yeah, and it's some scandal because he's taken his, his lover there. I'm going to give that a seven... I quite like that. You're going to give it a seven? I think I'd give it a five because I know it's not real. (laughs) How dare you? 
after that, Georgia ends the episode. Okay. That is that is the end of our ghosts and skeletons. I have no more for you. Well, that's fine. We'll have some more next week, of course, because we will be doing the selection box for Northumberland Part 1 next week, as we've mentioned several times now. Northumberland has so many castles that this time around in Season 2, we're just looking at the A's and B's. We'll move on to a lot more maybe next season. But, yeah, we have several A's and B's selection box castles, mini castles, to look at next week, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm particularly excited about Berwick, because I know we're going to look at Berwick, and that's actually come up in a lot of my reading for this week. Really? Okay. Um, And I've had to avoid it, because obviously it comes up a lot with Robert the Brutes and people like that, so that's going to be good. I'm excited for you to tell me about that. Well, as always, we would love to hear from you. Let us know what you thought of the episode, what you thought of this castle, and also give us your scores for today's Ghosts and Skeletons. You can get in touch with us by finding us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Podcastles. You can also email us with podcastlespodcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you like this episode, please do give us a little rate and review, maybe subscribe. Really helps us out. And we will be back next week with Northumberland's selection box, Layer One. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.